Yeah. You know, Easter is just too great a holiday to only celebrate or sing that one day a year. We gotta celebrate the resurrection every time we gather. The whole reason we gather on Sunday is because Jesus rose on Sunday. It's the resurrection that compels us to gather this morning in this place and worship the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, choir, for reminding us of that wonderful celebratory truth. It's good to hear that truth proclaimed with such joy and fervor. So we get to have a little Easter today in November as we read John chapter 20 today, the whole thing. We're going to kind of fly through as a sprint to the end of the Gospel of John. Uh, Easter is the greatest of all the Christian holidays because without it, we don't have Christianity at all. The choir just reminded us of that, that beautiful truth that Christ is risen from the grave. You've heard that over and over, but my prayer is when we leave this place today, that will take root in our hearts. Without the resurrection, like I said, we don't have Christianity at all. Without the resurrection, we are left in our hope. 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. It is in vain. It is hopeless. N.T. Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright, Anglican Archbishop, who wrote a massive volume that I confess I haven't read the whole thing, called The, the Resurrection of the Son of God. He says, Easter was when hope in person came forward and surprised the whole world by coming from the future into the present. Isn't that great? Hope incarnate that showed up in our world surprised everybody, changed everything. The hope that, that God had announced that he would make a way to save a sinful world from sin was announced through the prophets in the Old Testament and at Advent, we celebrate that that hope came into the world, that he showed up in the flesh. What an amazing thing. But then he died. He was arrested, betrayed, convicted of a crime for which he was not guilty and sentenced to die. And no angels came to his rescue. He, he could have called a million angels of, of armies uh, waiting behind the wings who could come sweep, sweeping in and save him, but that didn't happen. He actually died. His side was pierced. Blood and water came flowing out. The Romans were professional killers. They knew how to do what they did. Two rich men came and took his body from the Roman officials, and they, they buried it quickly because the Sabbath day was upon them. What, what a terrible moment Friday night must have been, Saturday for all of those who had bought in to the teaching that this rabbi was proclaiming. They had given their whole lives to follow him. I, I'm sure the one prevailing thought that kept going through the minds of the disciples and all of those who proclaimed to follow this Jesus of Nazareth was, now what? Now what? Our rabbi, who, whom we have pledged our lives to, our Lord, our Master, our Savior, the one whom we have professed to be our all in all is dead. We've, we've given up everything that we have. We've quit our jobs. We've left our families behind in order to follow him. Now what? But it all came together on Sunday. 
in the resurrection. It all made sense in the resurrection. Easter Sunday was the inauguration of a whole new era where, where nothing in all of creation could ever be the same again. The resurrection is the key to this whole Christianity thing, okay? We have a living hope now. First Peter 1 says we've been born into a living hope. That's because of the resurrection. Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. It verifies it. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Everything hangs on, on the resurrection because it, it validates all of God's word. It validates all of God's plans. It validates who God is. So last week we looked at the crucifixion in John chapter 19. We looked at what the cross of Christ means for us as Christians and as people in this world. We talked about the plan that God had forged as a way to remain both just and loving and gracious at the same time in order to bring a broken people back unto himself through Jesus Christ. And we call that plan the gospel. But the cross is not the whole gospel. The, the resurrection completes the gospel. The, the cross is not the whole good news. Without the resurrection, it's not good news at all. So with that in mind, let's stand this morning if you're willing and able. No worries if you can't, please, no pressure. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, 
for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that they had said these things, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Are you, by nature, an optimist or a pessimist? I'll, I'll have to admit to you, I am, am definitely more of a glass-half-empty kind of person. I tend to err on the side of cynicism and pessimism. It's not a good place to be. I'm not proud of it. I don't think, as Christians, that's even proper or right. I think we should be eternal optimists as Christians. But I, in my sinful, broken flesh, I, I tend to err towards pessimism which is why I need friends like my friend Jordan. My friend Jordan and I go way back uh, till we were about 12 years old when we first met. We played a lot of basketball together. We played church league basketball all through middle school, most of high school, and then even through college. We, we were roommates at Belmont. We played uh, in the men's league uh, in church league basketball, and we played a lot of pickup ball in between there as well. But during the you know, games, if we were in a close game, it was near the end of the game, maybe we were down by five, six, seven points, he would always say, we got this, guys, we got this. And you know, there'd be 20 seconds left on the clock, and he's like, guys, remember, remember, Reggie Miller scored eight points in nine seconds. We can do this. It's possible, guys. Come on. We can, we can do this. And I was always like, I'm done. Game's over. You know, game's, game's over. But Jordan was eternal optimist. And he's right, he's right. 1995, I still remember this. I was in middle school at the time. Madison Square Garden, it was the game one of the Eastern Conference semifinals. Pacers, Knicks, uh, the, the Knicks outplayed them the whole game. This was the era of Ewing and Starks and you know, Rick Mahorn. They had a, all these all-stars. 
And, and at, towards the end of the game, the, the Pacers cut it to six. It was 105 to 99. 18 seconds left. Game's over, right? 18 seconds to go. That's, that's ball game. But they, they inbounded it to Reggie. He, he got it open for a three, drained a three. Then they inbound, Anthony Mason inbounds the ball, trying to get to John Starks, and Reggie Miller steals the ball, steps back behind the three-point line, shoots another three, boom, game's tied like that. About 10 seconds left. They finally get the ball into Starks. They foul him. He goes to the free throw line. He's just angry. He wanted no part of those free throws. He missed them both. Who gets the rebound? Ewing got the rebound, missed the offensive putback, and then who gets the rebound? Reggie Miller, of course, and he gets fouled. And he strolls confidently up to the free throw line, just big grin on his face, knocks down two clutch free throws to go up 108 uh, to 107 to 105. They win the game because Reggie scored eight straight unanswered points in nine seconds. It is possible. When it seems impossible, there's a way. I think Jesus' followers were more like me. I think they couldn't have imagined that the game could have been reversed at that point on Saturday, on Sunday morning early. I think they, they thought the game was over. We see here in chapter 20 that Mary Magdalene and a group of women who had been followers, devout followers of Jesus for a long time are going up to the, the tomb early, probably to continue the, the burial preparations that Joseph and Nicodemus had started. They probably didn't finish because the Sabbath day they weren't allowed to do any work, so they were going to finish those preparations. And Mary Magdalene, we know, was a devout, devoted follower of Jesus. She was not a woman of ill repute. That was a, a, a kind of early church idea that started. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. All we know about her in Scripture is that she had been healed of demonic possession by Jesus Christ. She'd been given a new lease on life. He, it said that seven spirits were in her and that Jesus Christ cast them out and gave her this new life. So she surrendered all that, that she was to following him as her Lord and Savior. And so it was Mary and the women who go to the tomb early Sunday morning while it's still dark, but when they get there, the tomb was, the stone had been rolled away and I'm sure Mary hadn't slept much, you know, like Trey and the youth. I'm sure she was bleary-eyed. Her eyes probably were still stinging from crying so much. Any of you who've been in a serious season of grief know what I'm talking about? I can imagine she, she rubs her eyes and looks into the tomb, and she can't believe what she sees. There's no body. So she runs over to where she knows Peter and, and John are staying, and she tells them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And they, we don't know where they've laid him. So John and Peter, they, you know, Peter's a man of action. I love Peter. He just bolts, starts running. But Peter apparently was more of a fullback than uh, uh, like a wide out. He, 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 he's only good for about 50 yards or so. And John outruns him to the tomb. And when John gets there, either he's deferring to Peter because Peter's kind of the, the head apostle or he's just scared of going in, but he doesn't go in without Peter. In verse five, it says that John... John's the beloved apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself. It says that he saw the grave clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. And the Greek word here in verse 5 for saw is blepo. It means like a cursory scene, a simple 
seen, like he acknowledged with his eyeballs that the grave clothes were lying there. It was a, a glimpse of the linen wraps and the faith cloth, face cloth that were lying on the bench inside the tomb. And then in verse six, Peter arrives, and of course, Peter, he out of the way, John, I'm going in. He barrels right into the tomb because he's Peter. And the text says that he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in place by itself. For years, I assumed that text meant that Jesus was some kind of neat freak who folded his sheets, you know, nicely and neatly. But uh, I, I quickly learned in, in marriage, uh, after a few weeks of marriage, that one of these simple ways I could show my wife that I loved her was to make the bed. I could care less, personally, if the bed was made or not. It doesn't do anything for me, but it really matters that the pillows are in the right position and the comforter is pulled up in a, a nice, neat place. My wife's a neat person. She enjoys a tidy household. I get that. That's fine. I thought that's what this must have meant, but most scholars tell us that the fact that the face cloth, the word for folded up means it was wrapped neatly, and the fact that it was separate, most scholars believe, is because the grave clothes were perfectly left in the same place where the body would have been. Peter saw that when he walked into the tomb. The, the way that, that Jewish people would bury their dead was they would wrap the body from the shoulders down with about 100 pounds of dried spices if they could afford it. And then they would wrap the head in like a, a turban in a neat, nice face cloth. And that face cloth was still wrapped as if it hadn't been undone at the head of where Jesus would have been. So when John goes into the tomb finally after Peter in verse eight, it says that then he saw, and in English it's the same word, but it's a very different word in Greek. It says that he saw and believed this time. He believed. The word for saw here is orao, and it means to see with understanding. It means to perceive, to, to actually grasp what's going on. When Peter and John go in and they oraoed the grave clothes, they understood what had happened. And John believed in the resurrection. No person, no army, no officials had come and stolen the body of Jesus away. It had been miraculously lifted out of the grave clothes and delivered from the grave. He'd risen, he had risen indeed. It's fascinating in verse nine too that John is experiencing all this as new revelation. He still hadn't connected the dots between the Old Testament and the new. Psalm 1610 that says, you will not abandon my soul. It's a messianic psalm. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He knew that Messiah would rise from the dead, but John couldn't figure it out. So Peter and John take off running back to where the disciples were to tell them that the Lord had risen, but Mary Magdalene is still weeping over the body not being there at the tomb. And the Messiah had delivered her and given her this new life, and, and now, as far as she knew, his, his body was gone, just insult to her injury. She assumed someone had taken Jesus' body, further mocking this so-called king of the Jews, as the Romans called him. But in verse 11, she, she looks back into the tomb and she sees two angels hanging out on the bench where Jesus' body was laid. 
sitting on either end of the old grave clothes. And before she can say anything, one of them asks her, woman, why are you weeping? And she honestly answers them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, he suggests at this point that one of the angels did one of these. <laughs> that he just motioned for her, turn around. Hey, Mary, turn around, look behind you. Mary turns around, look at verse 14, and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. So he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. Jesus says to her, Mary, one word. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Apparently, as, as Mary recognized him and cried out, Rabboni, she threw her arms around her and wept for joy. And Ken Hughes says in his commentary that Jesus wanted her to understand here. He says, don't cling to me. He wants her to, to grasp that a new kind of relationship is in the process of being established. They're not just gonna be earthly friends anymore. The comfort that awaited Mary and her friends and all the followers of Jesus was far more substantial than his material earthly presence could ever give. It's a spiritual connection of lordship that will never end. And isn't it amazing, in all four gospels, we don't grasp today how countercultural and revolutionary this is, that the good news of the risen Christ is first announced to women. All four Gospels make that clear. By the 50s, when Paul is writing about the resurrection of Christ, he doesn't mention it because no one would believe it. He doesn't mention that Christ first appeared to the women because it would not give any credibility to this new movement because of the patriarchal nature of the society at that time. He talks about how the risen Christ appeared to the apostles, yes, but in the Gospels, Christ always comes first to those who are insignificant in the eyes of the world. That's important. Mary Magdalene becomes the first human on earth to preach the good news of the resurrection. In verse 18, I've seen the Lord, she announces to the other disciples. What an amazing first Easter Sunday. By that evening, all the disciples gathered together somewhere in a private room, private room behind locked doors trying to figure out what exactly is going on, what their next steps are. And then Jesus shows up, verse 19. No one opened the door, and yet here he is. That doesn't mean that Jesus is a ghost. He's very physical, okay? His body is real. The, the, Thomas puts his fingers in the nail holes. All this means is that if the grave was no match for holding Jesus down, what's a deadbolt going to do, right? Nothing is going to stop Jesus at this point. And I'm sure everyone was astonished and amazed, overwhelmed with emotions, and Jesus simply declares to them again, peace be with you, just like he said in John 17. Shalom be with you. The greatest day in the history of the world had just taken place in their midst. 
Jesus shows them his wounds, his hands, his side. The disciples marvel, they laugh, they rejoice. All their temporary grief had been replaced by irreplaceable joy that would never end. Jesus then commissions them in verse 21. It's almost like he says, yeah, I'm, I'm back, that's great, but let's get to work. There's a job to do. You're gonna go take this new movement based on the resurrection and start this thing called the church all around the world. But apparently not, not all of them heard that commissioning because one of them was missing. Thomas, the cynic. Thomas, like a lot of you, like me, increasingly as I get older, just needed to be alone. He wanted to process things in his own way by himself. I, I get that. A lot of people here are introverts. You just need to do your own thing. That was Thomas. He needed some space. But he shows up after Jesus had left. And the disciples are, can't wait to tell him, Thomas, Jesus is back. He's risen. But Thomas can't believe it. Verse 25, he says, yeah, unless... I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger and feel the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side. I'll never believe. I need more. The world acts this way a lot, doesn't it? We need more for us to believe. We need more evidence. I get that, honestly. I have a hard time taking things on faith. I admit it. But the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ has been incredibly well documented by secular and Christian historians alike. Other theories like the swoon theory that Jesus just passed out and then he revived in the tomb or that his disciples somehow stole his body and had him like a puppet like Weekend at Bernie's or something, I don't know. All those theories would take more faith to believe than actually believing that, G that Jesus was raised by God from the dead. Apparently, Jesus gave Thomas eight days to think about it and pray about it, check his heart. He'd spent his time, all that time, no doubt, with the other apostles, hearing their testimonies about what was happening. And I'm sure Thomas was convinced already by the time that Jesus showed back up. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples are inside again and Thomas was with them. It's interesting, this time Thomas is with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you again. And then he graciously says to Thomas, without Thomas asking, hey, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. I like to believe that Thomas didn't even put his fingers in there. He didn't have to. Jesus said, hey, come, come put your finger here. And Thomas said, my Lord, my God. He didn't need the nail holes at that point. It took him a while to get there, but eventually Thomas chose to put his faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ as, as Lord of everything, his heart, his life, his body, his vocation, his future, his all. And then John closes really the main part of his gospel. The next two weeks, we're gonna look at the epilogue of his gospel, but he closes with verse 31 but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I don't know how many of you are like me at the end of the basketball game, 
and you're like, there's no chance. We're sunk. We're sunk. Maybe you need a Jordan in your life telling you, we got this. Reggie Miller scored eight points in nine seconds. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. We need that encouragement so that we can believe and by believing, have life, have abundant life, life to the fullest as Christ intended for us to have. And because he loves us, he wants us to have abundant life, but it only comes by grace through faith, by believing. That's what this whole thing's about. This whole year in John's gospel has been about cultivating belief in Jesus Christ that we may thrive and live abundant life. Maybe you're here today and you're not real fired up about your faith. Maybe your prayer life is just stagnant. Maybe you haven't really prayed in a long time. Maybe you're here and you're not really a Christian at all. Maybe you're just pretending. Maybe you're a nominal Christian that you call yourself a Christian, but you have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe the gospel doesn't excite you. Maybe you're not fired up about the fact that Jesus died for your sins and then he rose again and conquered sin forever. My suggestion is that you ponder the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the key to the whole thing. If this whole Christianity thing doesn't fire you up, if you're not sure about it, if it doesn't make sense to you, focus in on the fact today that Jesus rose from the dead. Come and put your finger on the nail-scarred hands of Christ and believe if that's what you need, he offers that in his grace. Find that life that's more abundant and free than anything this world can ever give you. Everything hinges on the resurrection. I want to close with a, a poem from John Updike called Seven Stanzas for Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution didn't reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths of, and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogies, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed.
by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance? Will we carry resurrection hope to a world that desperately needs it, reminding them, hey, Reggie Miller, Jesus Christ, he can do the impossible. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that when all hope seems lost, you are just working behind the scenes for our good and for your glory. God, I pray that you would forgive those of us like me who are cynical, who are prone to doubt, to skepticism, to viewing everything through that lens of skeptic nature. Grant us that we may believe more fully. Thank you for offering us your nail-pierced hands today, your side for us to touch and see that you have truly risen from the grave. God, I know that if we will believe that in our hearts, it will change everything. It will give us that eternal hope for the, the future beyond this life, for the rest of our days and well beyond, God. We thank you that you did not leave Christ in the tomb, but that you raised him in glory and in power, defeating death and sin forever, dealing Satan a death blow, a mortal wound. God, we thank you for the resurrection. May we believe it more and more fully in our hearts. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of response. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no better time to do so than right now. We're going to sing Christ is Risen. The verses are so great. We the choir anthem didn't have the verses. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the live inward shame, but fix our eyes upon the cross and run to him who showed great love. Christ is risen from the dead. Come awake. You don't have to live a dead life anymore. You can live raised to a whole new kind of life. If you need to do that today, come forward now. And if you just want to pray with somebody, uh, Brad, Trey, Jane, if you'll come forward, if you want to pray with someone here. If you want to pray with me, I'll be here. Just pray at the altar. Be open. Maybe you want to join with my Baptist church and become a part of this family of faith and say, I want, to, I want in on what God's doing here. I want to be a part of this family as imperfect as I am, as imperfect as you are, as imperfect as we are, that we want to journey together on this path of discipleship, following our Lord and Savior together, sharpening each other as iron sharpens iron. If you want to uh, make a decision to be baptized, whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing, Christ has risen from the dead.